over 16 years ago this event happened. Look at that beautiful woman and that weird-looking guy. 16 years ago, just over, Kelly and I were married at Old Laurelhurst Church. And I had no idea the importance of what marriage meant. I probably still am missing some pieces. I had no idea that the most important part of marriage is engaging in what we discussed last week, that all relationships within the church are to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church, that marriage is primary in that. And this is a proclamation of the gospel to the world around us by our covenant love one for another. Our marriages should reflect the Imago Dei. Now, I find the Lord's sense of humor hilarious because many of you know that the giant church in Portland, Imago Dei, Rick McKinley uh, is the main pastor there, um, they were just barely planted and they were meeting in this building. And so you'll see it on the sign there, Imago Dei Community, meeting on Sunday, Hans and Kelly's wedding on Saturday. I just find that kind of ironic as I was looking at this picture last night. Through our marriages, we are to show the Imago Dei. Christ wants to proclaim his glory. Now, for millennia, up until roughly about 150 to 175 years ago in the Western world, the institution of marriage was a building block of society. It's what we knew was at the structure, at the core of who we were as a people. And the reasons were many, but if you think about it, just take basic survival. Back in the day when you would have to hand plow a field, most women, and I'm, this is not me saying anything that's mean, it's just the truth, most women are not equipped physically to do that job, and so the man would have to go plow the field. Well, then it's not like they had Safeways or Costco's or you know, Burger King's back then, and so you had to have somebody preparing the food at home so you wouldn't starve to death while you were plowing the field. And this was from sunup to sundown, and if you want a refresher of what this looks like, go with me to Burkina Faso, where the women are literally cleaning and washing clothes from five in the morning until about midnight. This was what society was, and so nobody had any ideas about roles being wrong or different. But with the advent of the industrial age, things changed. Women could work on their own and provide for themselves, farms became more automated, and the agrarian need for family disappeared. It went bye-bye. And we, in our chronological snobbery, say, well, that's how it's supposed to be. Now, here's the cool thing. As we talked about last week, many of these changes were good because they brought, as we discussed last week, a sense of equality. The women's suffrage movement brought the right for women to have a voice publicly that they should have always had. The teetotaler and prohibition movement brought a reduction in spousal abuse and violence, but it was at the hands of alcoholic husbands. Any of you ever heard of the rule of thumb? That came from a place where you had the right to beat your wife with a stick as long as the stick was no wider than your thumb. That's where that phrase comes from. Spousal abuse was massive, and so these changes were good and needed corrective. These were all moral correctives that Christ, I guarantee you, rejoiced in because they brought some form of righteousness and justice. But intermixed with these good correctives were changing views that overshot, in my opinion, and I I believe the word, overshot God's view of righteousness and justice to something else. Rather than a simple course correction, we decided that our highest good as humanity, our very purpose was to no longer express the image and glory of God in our relationships. Our highest purpose was now what psychologists and sociologists call self-actualization. How many of you have heard of that phrase before? Self-actualization. The highest good that is oh so present in our society, and I would suggest to you that it has infiltrated the churches in a massive way, is that our highest good is self-discovery and the cultivation of the individual self. 
And this has caused a drastic change in both marriage and relationships in the church. With the baby boomer generation, sorry if that's you, but a change started to occur in the midst of the 60s and 70s. A professor of psychology named Eli Finkel in his book, The All or Nothing Marriage, it's a secular book, but he has immense wisdom in it. He says this, he says, when Americans began to prize a new brand of individualism, expressive individualism that cherishes self-discovery and psychological growth, things changed. He notes that expressive individualism is characterized by a strong belief in individual specialness. Voyages of self-discovery are viewed as ennobling. In other words, the self became the source of truth and the indicator of good and evil. Finkel notes, the pursuit of self-expression has become a moral good in and of itself. Just as in the garden with Eve, being true to oneself became the highest good. I can name six different people I have met this year that have stay true tattooed on their knuckles. Stay true, man. Stay true to yourself. Interestingly, this is a side note, this is Hans speaking, not the Lord. I find it very interesting that there was also a strong shift in Christendom during the 60s and 70s where the Jesus people movement initiated an idea that it's you and the spirit, forget the church. All of a sudden, members in the church no longer looked to the institution of the church for God's wisdom, but decided that they could take it upon themselves to decide what the spirit was leading them to do. And this is very prominent in today's church. In this perspective of self-actualization, what this then meant is that if we think that a new spouse or a new job or a new church or a new possession would make us feel better, then it does not matter in the least what it would mean to those around us, our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, our bosses, our churches. In this self-actualized view, it would be a sin to stay at the church in which you don't feel quote-unquote connected. It would be a sin to stay in the job where the boss, quote-unquote, does not appreciate your talents. It would be a sin to stay in the marriage where your spouse is just a nag and is holding you back. And so it makes sense that people would jump ship in those relationships. It's a sin to not be self-actualized in this idea. Again, Finkel says, not long ago, someone who was dissatisfied with his or her spouse and wanted a divorce had to justify the decision. Today, it's the opposite. If you're not fulfilled by your marriage, you have to justify staying in it because of the tremendous cultural pressure to be true to oneself. But there's a cost that comes with this, don't you think? This kind of a switch in our psychology. No relationship is then safe from the chopping block. Ethicist Felix Adler says this, he says, you cannot make happiness the highest end without coming to the intolerable position that the marriage ceases when happiness ceases. And I would add to that that this becomes the case for any relationship. If happiness is your goal, then you know when to get out of that relationship or that group of people when they don't make you happy any longer. In this view, to stay in that would be a sin. In other words, if faithfulness is not your highest value with regard to relationships, especially marriage, then it's easier to discard them than to fix them. It's easier to move on than to dwell in the conflict and resolve it. 
But guys, when faithfulness is your highest value above and beyond self, then conflict actually is a good thing. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into trials of various kinds. It becomes a good thing. Why? Because sanctification is good. Conflict brings intimacy through the process of sanctification. Now, you might guess where I stand. Am I a person who believes that the Bible teaches self-actualization or a person that believes the Bible teaches faithfulness? Hopefully you can figure that out. I've been trying very hard not to be sarcastic this whole time. (laughs) Hopefully you are people that look to the Bible and its source of faithfulness. And so my hope is that this morning we can acknowledge that we have all been misled and lied to by our adversary, his kingdom of darkness, and our culture. We are lied to every time we pick up our phones and look at our social media account as we mold ourselves into who we desire to look like. We're lied to. We've bought the lie that the all-glorious self should reign supreme and be the arbiter of truth. And this is the lie that's as old as the garden. It's simply become mainstream thought in 2018. Instead, let's look today to God's word and see that he is the one who gives us truth. And what we will see today is not only a command for husbands in the midst of marriage relationships, but we will also see a strong connection and union between relationships in the church and relationships in the home. What you will see, guys, is that how you treat the church is how you will eventually treat your marriage. And how you treat your marriage is how you will eventually treat the church. Time and truth are friends, and the two will even out. The truth is that all relationships within the church should be based on the sacrificial love of Christ, and that should filter down into the relationships that Paul talks about here. And so Paul has started into what the Reformers called the household code, or the house tables, using the physical relationship of husband and wife, parent, child, master, servant, to picture Christ's relationship with his people. And so let's pick up now with this understanding that we need to lay down the lie and pick up the truth. Let's look here in verse 18 and read through the verses we're looking at today, 25 through 33. Would you join me there in 518? It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But the first point I want to give you this morning is this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, you could very easily change that love into loves. It's one in the same. He has loved us, is loving us, and will love us until eternity, eternity future. Last week, the panel and I attempted to help the women of the church understand their immense importance and role in showing the gospel truth of God's love. First as sisters within the household of God, and then members within the body of Christ. But for those that take on the additional responsibility in the role of wives, another strong picture is shown, and that of the church's duty to follow the lead of Christ in obedience and submission. If those words are tough for you to handle, I would suggest you go back and listen to the teaching in which I broke that down last week. I, I think, ladies, you will find that somewhat liberating uh, to understand what Paul is saying here. That picture of the church submitting to Christ, though, is quickly soured. If the submission is to a husband that is not loving to his wife, why would the world look at a wife who's being abused by an overbearing husband and say, I want into a relationship like that? Paul clearly tells us what the definition of a husband's love should be, and he uses three statements for that. We're going to look at those three today. First, what he says is it should resemble and reflect the love Christ has for the church. To accurately reflect this love, Paul uses what many theologians believe is a creed or a short statement of belief used in the early church. He says it right there, that Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so, we can write these down. If you're taking notes, you can write down first, husbands should love as Christ loved the church. That's the first thing. There's a foundation of love. The picture of God's love for his people is well documented throughout scripture. The apostle John stated clearly in his first letter that God is love. And that it was this love that was the motivator of his entire plan of redemption. For God so loved the world. Love was the motivator. But this love was not there just because of Jesus. It started even prior to Jesus. It started in eternity past. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, he says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now my good Calvinist brothers, who I love dearly, would say that this is dealing with an individual foreknowledge of God predestining an individual person. My predisposition is to see this more from a perspective that God declared that he had love to pour out on a people. Uh, ladies, it's like you who desire to be married and you're not yet, and you have love that you know you want to give to a husband, but you don't know his name yet. Now, God knows all things, and so, yes, he knew who was going to be his people. But Paul is trying to speak here of God's love that he wanted to pour out. He determined that he would have a people that would be his own. And this idea is metaphorically expressed throughout the entire Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah with me, for example. Go there in your Bible with me. Go to Isaiah. And look at Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. He says to Israel, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Look at 61.10. Go a little bit to the right and look at 61.10. 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh, in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Look at 62 verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. Ladies, that's where you get the idea from of taking on a new name. That the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. Ladies, would you love it if that's what your husband said about you? My delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Look at the love the bride and the groom have for each other. And you see an image, a shadow of the love Christ has for you. It far outweighs that earthly love. But it is at least that. And this is a love that does not waver because of circumstances. God's love was promised to his people, his true people. And guys, this book that we hold in our hands, this is a story of a God of loving pursuit that pursued us so that he might have an object on which he could pour out his perfect holy love. That's how much the Lord loves you. Husbands, we must found our love for our wives not on how they respond in the moment, but in a faithfulness that is partnered with the Holy Spirit to help them grow into all that he intends. It must be founded on a knowledge that as we stay true to lead our wives in the ways of Christ, the Holy Spirit will do what he does best to sanctify them into a perfect bride. Well, let's go back to Ephesians and keep going. First, he loved the church. Second, you can write down, we must love our wives as Christ gave himself up for the church. Gave himself up for the church. Romans 5.8 is clear that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still enemies of him, Christ died for us. He didn't sacrificially love us because we were perfect in the moment. It was quite the opposite. Church, recognize your sin and recognize that Christ still pursued you. Husbands, does that give you a view of how we should treat our wives? Even when his disciples rejected him, fled from him, and those he came to love crucified him, Christ sacrificially loved them by giving his very life as an offering for you and for me so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to the Father. That core of the gospel, that death on the cross to atone for our sins, that is what our motivation should be as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that should filter down to how we husbands love our wives. Husbands, are we basing our responses to our wives off of their leading, their negative tones, their criticisms? Or are we rising above our need of retaliation and giving them an example in those moments of conflict, what it is to love them even when they may not deserve it? 
I think if you search, what you'll find is that the heavy majority of the time, your wives deserve the love. But my point is, is that even in those moments where they may not, the gospel tells us how we should respond. We sacrifice our ego, our fear of rejection, our need for vengeance, and love one another, especially our wives, despite temporary failures. How can we call ourselves Christians unless we love despite brokenness? Paul then breaks into three purpose statements here in Ephesians. He says he loved the church, he gave himself up for her, and then he says that, that's a purpose statement, or reasons why he gave himself for the church. Let's look at the next one there. What does it say? That he might sanctify her. The idea of sanctify is to set apart for God and his service. This is what it means to make holy. The church is to be made up of saints. Raise your hand if you're a saint. Okay, guys, raise your hand if you're a saint. Everyone should be raising their hand. Okay, we don't need a canonization in order to make a person a saint. The word saint, it comes from the same words in both the Hebrew, karash, and in the Greek, hagios, hagios, that means holy, to make holy. So a, a saint is one who God is making holy. Is that true for you? Yeah. And this is why Paul used a similar picture when he's talking about the church. Look at what he says about the people in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, meaning sinners, because there's a whole list before that of those sins. But, he says to the individuals in the Corinthian church, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This idea of sanctification has both ongoing connotations as well as an immediate connotation. Here, Paul is most likely referring to what happened when Christ died for us. It made us clean, and the rest of, the li rest of our lives is the walk of sanctification where we step into that identity. It cleansed us from our sins and set us apart for his service. So you can't be cleansed for, from sin and not set apart for service. You can't be cleansed from sin and not set apart for service. To be a saint is to have both. Husbands, what is your goal for your wives? And if you have them, what's your goal for your kids? Is it to use them as objects for your own personal gratification? To use your wives as slaves to fulfill your needs physically and within the household? Do you want to get more toys and so you need your wife to work even though she wants to stay home with the kids because, man, you need that boat, you need those toys for boys? Is it to live out your unmet dreams of success through your children in sports? You couldn't make varsity, so they darn well will. Or maybe it's just a need to be liked by your kids. Maybe that's your driving motivation. Or is your highest purpose in regards to your wife and children that they might walk in the holiness of Christ? That they might know Jesus that much more than you do? Is this reflected in the way we lead our families, in the way we set our schedules, in the way we prioritize whether or not the body of Christ matters in the life of our families? Well, fourth, not only did Jesus love the church, give himself up for the church, wash the church, sanctify them, but he uses another purpose statement. He says, we as husbands are to love our wives like Christ in that he might cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. 
Most commentators agree that Paul is pulling imagery here from the widely known bridal bath that would occur before the wedding ceremony of ancient Middle East brides. This was to present them as pure for their husbands on their wedding day, and it spoke of God's work in purifying his bride for himself. We are so uh, legal in our mindset in the West that we think of guilt imagery, innocence, guilt, but in the Middle East, they think of cleansing and being dirty or impure. It's a shame-based culture. And so this idea was huge to people to understand what God had done for them. We kind of go, oh, cool, he cleanses us. Yeah, I, I do that too every morning in the shower. Like, eh, no big deal. But for them, it was massive. To paint the picture of this idea of God pulling his people out of their muck and their mire and drawing them from an idolatrous and rebellious pagan nation and making them clean. Let's look at Ezekiel. Turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Go to the, back to the Old Testament there to Ezekiel 16. Now this whole section, if you want to read through the whole chapter, I won't have time to do it here today, but the whole section is about the faithless idolatry that the people of God had in the way that they acted. That they weren't proving true to be his wife. And so it says in 16.1, it starts this picture. And what I want you to grasp is not necessarily the part about the faithlessness. That's important too. But I'm going to help you understand just this picture of what God did for us in cleansing us from our sin. Look at what he says there to Israel in 16.1 of Ezekiel. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord of God, Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That sounds like a bad Monty Python joke or something, right? <laughs> and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. Guys, don't, don't hold back. Let your mind go to this picture. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, in your, in your death, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. I find that Americans have a hard time understanding this passage, except for those that I counsel who've been molested sexually. When I get a chance to enter into the pain of sexual molestation, a person who has been molested wants nothing more than to be told that they don't have to be ashamed anymore. 
that they're no longer dirty, that they're no longer broken. And if we search our hearts deep, we recognize that all of us walk in shame, and that's why we self-protect very badly. It may not be sexual molestation, but it's probably something. It might even be words that a parent said to you that broke you. Some form of abuse that you suffered. But what Christ has done for us is he's picked us up out of the muck and the mire. He's set us on solid ground and he has made us his own. And he has said to us, you are clean. Nothing that you have done can be held over your head any longer. Now, Israel, they reacted not out of thankfulness and walking in obedience, but they responded in rebellion. But God's love is so strong. Look there at verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. How did God atone for the sins of Israel? How did God atone for the sins of Israel? Jesus. The same sins that you and I have, he atoned. He paid the price. Guys, Christ has not just done a ceremonial washing that stopped at the moment of justification. He continues to wash us with the water of his word every time we step into it. Commentators debate what this means back in Ephesians, but the general consensus is that Paul is referring to baptism in the authority of the gospel. Go back to Ephesians with me there. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Paul's referring to baptism with the authority of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, is the word of God something you view as life-giving water? Do you view it as bread from heaven? Church, how long can you go without eating? And yet many of you in this room go months without opening your Bible. How long can you go without drinking water? And yet many of you in this room will go weeks without opening your, bi your Bible. I fear that many of you are apathetic or don't pursue the word because you just don't feel like it. But guys, remember what we started this with. The feelings are not the truth. Or maybe you just don't prioritize it. Some of you may even believe that you are past the Bible because you falsely believe that since you've studied it, well, I went through it one time, then you're no longer supposed to get in the Word. We must be in the Word constantly to bring our minds in submission to Christ's truth. You get inundated 24-7, not only with your own disposition to sin, but with Netflix and Instagram and social media and CNN and Fox News and everything else. And you wrongly think that's true. To counteract that, this has to be at your hip. That's why it's referred to as a sword. What warrior goes into battle without his sword? And yet so many of you are like, well, it's on my phone if I need it. Men, I, I need to say something to you. Be men of the book, not of your phones. You think I'm joking. Be men of the book. If you're reading on your phone right now, I'm not trying to shame you. 
Recognize this, though. How do your children know you ever read your Bible? Do they know the difference between when you check ESPN.com and Instagram and when you read your Bible? How do they know? You do it all on your phone. The Gospel Coalition article that came out this week was amazing on this topic. One of the great quotes in there. How will our view of the Bible change if our primary encounter with it is on the same device from which we exert so much control and manipulation of our own cell phones. Guys, if you want the Bible to be the source of truth, then make it the source of truth and don't have it on the same thing that you use to text. Give it some reverence. Be men of the book. And I know some of you are like, Hans, that's legalistic. Guys, I've been in ministry long enough that I see what happens when you just switch 100% to your phone. You never use it. Get a Bible and be in it. Husbands, dads, are we people that make it a priority to wash our families in the word of God's truth? We need to be. We have to be. Well, fifth, Paul says, we need to love our wives as Christ loved the church that he might present her to himself in splendor. That word splendor there is endoxon. It means in, in glory. What a beautiful image of the future with Christ. He's talked about what he did for us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. What he's doing for us, sanctifying us, washing us with the water of the word, and what he will do for us, that he might present her to himself in splendor. What a beautiful image of the future with Christ. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. I love the Christian Standard Bible version of this. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker partner, ladies, don't freak out at that, okay? That has connotations I don't have time to go into. Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think this is a picture we as husbands need. Am I putting the time and energy into developing and discipling and cherishing and nourishing my wife so that when the day of the Lord comes, I can say to the Lord, Lord, my wife is an offering to you. A little confession time for, for you guys. I shared with my discipleship group yesterday. Uh, I'd gone the whole week, and I hadn't followed my own application. So last night, super late, Kelly was falling asleep. She's been really sick, and I was just finishing off my teaching. I went in and la laid down because I knew I'd have to confess it to you, and I said, hey, honey, uh, I need to do my application for the week. <laughs> How am I doing as a husband? Uh, she was very gracious. She said, you're doing great. Like, you lead me in the ways of the Lord, right? But guys, we know, don't we, where the bar is set. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is that the bar we set for ourselves? Softly, quietly here. This is not a message to beat you up and hammer you into the ground. Seth was funny last week. He, I said, uh, yeah, I beat up on the men more than I did the women last week. And he says, yeah, that's usually how it goes. You beat up on the men during the wives section and you beat up on the men during the husband section too. It's kind of true, but that's because we're supposed to be the leaders, guys. I want to be able to stand before Jesus one day and put my hand on the small of my wife's back and gently press her towards Jesus and say, Jesus, this is how much I love you. I want to put my hands on the back of my kids and press them slowly towards Jesus and say, Jesus, this is how much I love you. This, dear church, is the love of Christ. If you are here today and you don't know Christ, read these verses. 
He loves you so much that he has done this for you, for a person who is in rebellion against him. He's loved you from eternity past, given his very life to atone for your sins so that he might separate you and draw you to himself and give you the work of proclaiming his gospel with your life. He's washed you. He's made you clean. And one day he will resurrect you to glory if you submit to him as Savior and King. If you don't know Jesus today, please come talk with me in the back after service. I would love to walk you through what it is to accept this truth. But men of mission, whether married or looking forward to marriage, we must become men that are so well acquainted with what Christ has done for his church and for us individually that it radiates off of us towards our wives. We have to sit in the gospel all the time. For us to fulfill our role with this grand illustration of Christ and his church in our marriages, we are called to love our wives like Christ loved the church through the gospel. Men of mission, are you up for that task? I believe you are. Can our wives tangibly understand how deeply loved they are by Christ because of the example we give them? Or do they have a hard time understanding the love of the Father because of their earthly fathers and their earthly husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, we have to admit this is a lofty standard, is it not? Tune back in with me. I know you're sitting in conviction. Tune back in with me. Is this a lofty standard? Yes. Thank God that Paul is a realistic man. Because he moves from this idea into another picture where he says this to us. He says, guys, if this is hard for you to understand, do this. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as you love yourselves. <laughs> Praise God, Paul. Thank you for not ending it there because all of us would sit in silence for the rest of our lives. The sociological trigger in the past was that a man would get married and take on the responsibilities of a wife, a job, and children within their 20s. Now it's a higher priority in our 20s and 30s to live out our dreams, fulfill our wanderlust, sow our wild oats, and to be true to ourselves. And the church is no different than the world. The average credit debt per family in the United States is a staggering $8,000. And I thought that was actually low. And much of that, guys, has to often do with boys and their toys. It just does. We have to own up to that. If we can judge our idols by our time, our talents, and where our money goes, many men would have to admit that their idol is their hobbies, their cars, their TV, or their sports. I will praise the Lord the day that a Sunday is not started by watching two men come up to each other with the greeting, hey, did you watch the game last night, or did you catch the scores? Men, your first question should not be about sports. I know that's where you're comfortable. Get over it. Ask each other about your walk, your purity, who Jesus is, how you're treating your wife, how you're treating your kids, what your work was like, and if you showed Christ in your workplace. Now, hobbies and cars and TVs and sports and phones, these are not evil things in and of themselves. Maybe phones, but everything else, not really. <laughs> Christ spoke truthfully when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And guys, these hobbies and video games and TV, they're for fun and entertainment, and I have no problem with that. But in many cases, these, along with addictions such as pornography and drugs and alcohol and hours of simply staring into that little thing in our hands, it's really just for the purpose of insulating oneself from the vulnerability of potential hurt in relationships. These are escape routes to deal with life for men who really haven't ever come out of their shells and been told that they're men. And so we as men isolate, and the idea of deep relationships where we disciple one another is easily dismissed as not my thing. 
The idea of giving my heart and feelings, hopes, dreams, and fears to my wife, who could so easily crush me with a single word, it's just too hard. And so we love ourselves by escaping. But in doing so, we actually harm ourselves because what we crave as men, we are created to know and be known. Remember the reading that Ryan gave us prior to the teaching? Men are created to look at their wife in all their glory and say with love, you are part of me. You are my better half. You're bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You're, you're one with me. We're created to be men like David, men after God's own heart, who even though he was a schmuck and tried to escape in many different capacities, look at the relationship he had with his brother, Jonathan, not by blood, but by covenant. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Guys, I recently sat down with a guy who I tried to explain this to, and he told me that that seemed kind of homosexual. I would love it if you would go talk to David and Jonathan when they've got their sword and their bow and their belt and their armor on and say that to them. This is what men are. This is what men are. We've become so numb to intimacy and full of self-protection which is really ego protection, that we don't know how to intimately love one another or our wives. And so we stay in elongated adolescence, more comfortable making fart jokes and creating fantasy football players than engaging in deep discussion about scripture. We've made an environment in which there is desire to achieve deep intimacy while remaining invulnerable to pain. And it's not possible. Philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer famously recorded this awesome parable called The Porcupine's Dilemma. That's what we've become. On a cold winter day, a group of porcupines huddled closely together to save themselves by their mutual warmth from freezing. But soon they felt the mutual quills and drew apart. Whenever the need for warmth brought them closer together again, this second evil was repeated so that they were tossed back and forth between these two kinds of suffering until they discovered a moderate distance that proved tolerable. To be sure, this only persists in perfect satisfaction of the need for mutual warmth but it also keeps one from feeling the prick of the quill. Guys, in doing this and becoming these half-hearted men that stay away from intimacy but try and step into it just enough, Satan has made us convinced we are effective while keeping us relationally ineffective. I've seen this time and time again in marriage counseling in both men and women, but especially in men. Our egos can't take on one more criticism, one more nag, and so we just simply shut down and isolate. We know we need the love and affirmation of our wives, but we're not vulnerable in sharing that with them or saying that they may have hurt us. And so we end up blaming them and going into our phone. Well, Paul gives us a clear answer. In Ephesians 5, 28 through 30, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Happy wife, happy life. Am I right? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We must proactively and consciously sacrifice our egos and lead our wives not be broken by them. Men, you have the strength within you that in the moment of conflict to back out. 
and to say, this probably doesn't glorify Christ. Let's lead in a new direction. You know how I know that? Is because there's brothers sitting in here today who I've had discussions with this week that were shocked at themselves that they could do that. And they're not perfect at it yet, but they know how to do it. You know who you are. This is possible. Guys, recognize that your identity does not lie in your sensitive and bruised ego. Dude, I was an athlete. I have the most sensitive and bruised ego ever. Ask any pastor or ex-pastor. Pastors are like some of the most sensitive people on the planet. But that's not our identity. It does not lie in the father wounds or absentee fathers that so many of us have had. Our identity as leaders comes from the Most High King and the loving Father God. And he has said to us, you are men and my spirit will make you act like it. He's positioned us to lead our families in love and to rise above the fray when emotion enters into marital conflict and to realize that in loving our wives well, it will result in glory to God and goodness to us. Husbands, when we see conflict on the horizon, ask yourself, am I loving and protecting my wife as much as I want to love and protect myself right now? Again, one of these brothers who uh, was pleased to find that they could step above the fray, they said to me recently, uh, I hope he doesn't mind that I'm using this, he said, you know, I realized that I was finally broken when I recognized that my job was to protect my wife and I was not actually protecting her from the, the worst person in her life who was me. That's a summary of what he said. Our job is to protect our wives and kids. Often we're the ones that we need to protect them from. Now Jesus made this so easy on us. In Matthew seven twelve. he told us, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Anytime you see this is the law and the prophets, he's saying this is a summary of everything that speaks to righteousness and justice that God is calling us to. This is so amazingly simple, but so profound. Think about any situations of conflict you've got going on right now in your marriage, in your home, with friends, within the church, and ask yourself the question, am I treating them how I would like to be treated? Are they treating me how they think they'd like to be treated? If we could just shut our Bibles and memorize this for the rest of our lives, I think the church would be a much better witness, would it not? Husbands, love your wives as much as you love yourselves. But you might still protest. You might say, Hans, this is all well and good, and I want to do that, but how do you do it in the midst of emotion and pain and anger? Guys, I've been there. It took 21 hours of personal counseling and a $70,000 psychology education to get me to go, wait a minute, I'm doing this wrong. But the kicker wasn't those two things. The kicker was what I'm about to tell you. You can do it. My heart breaks for you in those situations, but Paul in this last section gives us the solution that we need when we feel like, man, I'm, I'm out of practice. I don't know how to do this. This last piece is hugely important. Number three, my final point, husbands, love your wives as Christ calls you to love his body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ calls you to love his body. Now, you might immediately think, Hans, that's not a good idea because I don't really love the body of Christ very well, and so that would be bad for my wife. I actually love the body of Christ less than I love my wife. And I would say, welcome to most of American Christianity. But if you'll notice, there is an order in the way that Paul writes this. Can you guys tell me what verse 21 of chapter 5 says? Go ahead, read it out, somebody. And who is that one another Paul's talking about? The church, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Is that above or below all of these relationships we're now talking about? 
above. Household relationships roll out of the church. Remember, we talked last week about reordering your relationships and the proper priority. Well, look with me at Ephesians 5, 29 through 33, and this may hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, change your view of the church. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he quotes from our reading this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Remember that when Paul quotes from an Old Testament scripture, he brings the surrounding context into the current conversation. Here he references a verse from our reading this morning by speaking of two individuals becoming one flesh, one body. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's marriage, is it not? You out there? That's marriage, is it not? Now, do they really morph into one blob? Olivia and Trevor, are you hoping to suddenly just turn into this, yeah, monster, half Olivia, half Trevor? No. You're not. It's speaking metaphorically of the physical connection that happens as the marriage is consummated. It speaks to the fact that in mind and emotion, there is, there is connection there. It's picturing mutual devotion and intimacy. And to be sure, Paul is saying this as a type or picture of the worldwide church in Christ. But remember what we've learned throughout Ephesians. To take part in the worldwide church is to do what? To devote yourself to a local expression of the church. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1-2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Does that mean that all of the church of God was contained in Corinth? Yes or no? No. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You participate in the global church by your local expression of it. This is the local body made up of individual members. And look at how Paul uses the same imagery in his letter to the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians 11 too. For I feel, he says to the members of the Corinthian church, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you, the Corinthian church, as a pure virgin to Christ. Is he talking about the worldwide church there? No, he's talking about the local expression, Corinth. He said, I have taken you and betrothed you, that local expression. When we think of the love of Christ in the church, we're quick to agree that it means we individually are joined with Christ. This is what 1 Corinthians six seventeen says. It says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. But there's even more than that included in this imagery. It's not just the individual in Christ. It is all of us as members united in Christ, which means we are united with one another, devoted to one another, just as we are to Christ. Look at what Paul's trying to get across to the church at Corinth to understand this primary point of what the Spirit does, love and unity with one another. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 14. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And so included in this marriage command to husbands and advice for me individually, Paul is innately helping husbands figure out how to be in relationship with their wives. We are to practice loving submission and respect where? The church. Glad one person understands what I'm saying. 
The church is to be the practice for the big game. So that when you go, boy, that's how I'm supposed to submit to the leadership of this church. Oh, I need to do that with my, okay, I connect. Well, that didn't feel very good in my relationship with my brother. I should fix that. Oh, now I have more skills to go resolve conflict with my wife. We practice loving submission and respect with one another in our relationships within the church. When we emphasize the fierce independence we all crave so much, we miss out on the sanctification and intimacy Christ intended to occur amongst his people that would result in proclaiming his loving gospel to the world. And not only that, as the church turns into a consumer product that does not require devoted faithfulness and commitment from its members, marriages suffer. As the church degrades, so do marriages. Guys, I've talked to a number of pastors in town who I've showed them our, our, our covenant. And number one, after they go, wow, you're asking a lot of your people. And I say, yes. They go, how's it going? And I say, well, actually, we have 100 out of like 120 adults as members. And they go, man, I wish I could do that. Literally, multiple of them. But isn't that what Christ's calling you to do, is to create an environment and a church of devoted people, devoted to one another? See, the reality is, folks, is most pastors would love to do what we collectively have just done. They just realize they wouldn't be able to pay for their building if they did it. Now, that may sound harsh, but that's the reality. Because the consumers want a consumer product. And as the church turns into that, and you can easily hop from one church to the other because I'm tired of that consumer product that doesn't meet my individual needs anymore. I'll go over here. Guess what effect that's having on marriages? Eh, my wife, she's kind of getting older. I think it's time to turn her in for a new model. Do you not see the parallel? The church is the institution that cares for marriage. And when a church body is made up of members who decide they will not take the easy way, way out when conflict arises, but they will work on reconciliation, then those same people will have a practice ground in which they will only improve in relationship and conflict resolution with their spouses. I recently read an article on depression and suicide in which they mentioned a writer from the late 19th century, a long time ago, that compared the differences between Catholics and Protestants. Catholics who have a strong corporate view of the church and their part as members of a body, and Protestants, and at the time, their emerging rugged individualism. The article says this, In 1897, Emily Durkheim published Suicide, an early attempt to understand the connection between culture and suicide. In it, she noted the differences in suicide rates between Catholic and Protestant Germans. Durkheim argued that higher levels of social integration in Catholic societies helped reduce suicide, while greater individual autonomy and social isolation in Protestant societies tended to increase it. Carol Rusbolt, a professor of psychology in the Netherlands, speaks to what happens when faithfulness and commitment are a higher priority than self. She says that in these situations, people regularly engage in a range of relationship maintenance mechanisms. To the extent, listen to this, to the extent that they are committed to the relationship, they will make sacrifices, forgive their partner's transgressions, and perceive alternate partners as less desirable than they actually are in reality. In other words, when our highest good is to declare God's character by our commitment and faithfulness to one another, conflict resolution happens, forgiveness happens, and sanctification happens. When our highest good is self-protection, self-fulfillment, happiness, 
and always needing a way out of the relationship, God forbid I step into devoted commitment, faithfulness disappears, consumerism flourishes, bitterness grows, and sanctification does not occur. Eli Finkel, the author from earlier, rightly states, the distinction between happiness and meaning adds clarity to the idea that the pursuit of personal fulfillment in relationship is incompatible with the pursuit of relational commitment. Brothers and sisters, if we are to rightly put down this individualistic and narcissistic view that takes precedence in both the marriage and the church, we must first repent of our misunderstanding of God's plan for our lives. It is not about me. We must repent of our desperate need for self-actualization, self-fulfillment, and instead, we must ask God to reignite his call for us to proclaim the gospel with our lives and with our relationships. If we want to be a church that fulfills our purpose of proclaiming the character and nature of God to Salem and Kaiser so they're drawn to him, we have to repent today of marriages built on the romantic self. And we have to repent today of a consumeristic view of the local church. We must instead engage in the activity that shows we desire to be a people full of faith, a faithful people, full of faith, a faithful people in our marriages and in our church today. So, what do we do with all this? Well, our practical application today is the same very much as it was last week. First, we must all, married or not, ask ourselves if we have bought the lie that staying true to myself is the highest good over and above declaring God's sacrificial love with my life. Have we bought the lie that staying true to myself is the highest good over and above declaring God's sacrificial love with my life? Secondly, we must all, married or not, become experts in the gospel of Christ. We must become experts in his word so that we have it as a filter at all times to guide us in relationship to show Christ's love to one another. We have to become experts in the gospel. So first, have we bought the lie that self is higher than being faithful? Secondly, have we, uh, we need to become experts in the gospel of Christ. Third, we need to recognize that God gave us the local church to engage as a practice ground in what godly relationships look like. See, the reason so many people have a problem with when I say the metaphor of, hey, if somebody came to your daughter and said, I really like you, I want to have sex with you, I want to be with you the rest of my life, but please don't make me enter into a forced commitment where I have to sign a piece of paper and state a vow. All of you would say, well, that's crazy. Of course not. We as dads, we want our kids to enter into that marriage vow. But then I say, guys, that's reflected in Christ in the church and your commitment to the church. You go, whatever. That's because of the consumeristic mentality that the church has bought. And so we need to recognize that God gave us the local church to engage as a practice ground in what godly relationships look like. And they begin with devotion, commitment, and vowing your life to one another. With all the love and respect I can muster, church, I would beg each of you today, to stop finding reasons to be a porcupine. And instead, dive in with both feet. And devote, devote yourself to this body. To the hundred of you that already have, thank you. 
people can already see the changes in our church. The world outside of us sees your devotion for one another, and it's working in our best days that are ahead of us. So recognize that God gave us the local church to engage as a practice ground in godly relationships. Fourth, husbands, ask yourself if you are loving your wife as Christ loves the church. If not, what one can change you, what one change can you make this week to move in that direction? Ask yourselves if you're loving your wife as Christ loves the church. And I think if you're like me, you're going to go, no, <laughs> probably not near that. So what one change can you make this week to move in that direction? Affirming your wife, caring for her, asking her her heart, spending time with her. What one thing can you do and change to move in that direction? And fifth, wives, I want you to ask yourself if you are respecting and following your husband as you follow and respect Christ. Wives, if not, make a plan tomorrow for one change in which you can better assist and affirm your husband in his role to lead you in Christ. So husbands, ask yourself if you're loving your wives as Christ loved the church, and if not, do one thing, make one change to show that truth. Wives, ask yourself if you're respecting and following your husband as you follow and respect Christ. And if not, make a plan to change that one thing so we can better assist and affirm your husband in his role to lead you in Christ. Church, I would be ignorant to say that this is not a weighty task or that this is easy. But it's one for which God's Holy Spirit has empowered us and one in which God has equipped us with his holy word if we simply answer the call.